Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, please, as we continue in our series from the book of Hebrews. If you do not have a Bible, let me ask you to kind of cozy up next to someone that has one, and uh, please bring your Bibles. We want you to open the Bible. We want you to read God's Word as, as, as we teach it. We want you to see the words. It's important. And uh, we do have Bibles for you. So if you need a Bible, see us and we'll get you one. But it's important that you read these words as well as hear them. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient? So, we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Oh, Father, my desire is that no one here would be unable to enter because of unbelief. Lord, I pray that your word would proceed now, Lord, through my lips, with your anointing, and it would captivate the heart of every man, woman, and child in this building, and everyone that would hear this through a taped message. God, I pray for your will to be done. Build your church, and may the gates of hell not resist that. May your word proceed strongly, And build your people in Jesus' name. Amen. My family and I love the series Band of Brothers. It is about the 101st Airborne Division, specifically Easy Company of that division, and their battles in World War II. These were men who were trained as paratroopers to jump out of airplanes behind enemy lines to defeat the enemy. Now, there's a couple of reasons I like it. I like it because I do like war movies, but number two, it reminds me of my time in the military because I had the privilege to also attend airborne school, be jump qualified as a paratrooper. And to do that, in 1997, I had to undergo rigorous training. Uh, Part of being a paratrooper is you run a lot, you do a ton of push-ups, they beat you, and all that good stuff. And so I had to get tougher because I was a little soft. And so my good friend, Charlie Wise who attended University of Florida with me, who was a long-distance runner in high school. I've never been a long-distance runner, okay? He was a long-distance runner. He, he agreed to train me. So Charlie was there with me every single day. And we would run four, five, six miles a day in combat boots, getting ready for airborne school. 
And I remember there was one particular run in Gainesville. And I remember, I'm from Miami where there's no hills, everything's flat. Gainesville has hills. There was one hill, in parentheses, the hill toward the end of the run that I hated. And every time I got to that hill, I wanted to turn back, at least slow down. And there was Charlie right next to me. He was helping me. He was encouraging me. He was instructing me. He was teaching me how to run. At times, he was admonishing me, Reed yelling at me, Get going, Pino! And we made it, and I didn't slow down. And thanks to Charlie, I went to airborne school in the summer of 77 and qualified and got my jump wings. And I'm so grateful. But you know what? Today's message, today's message is addressed to a group of people, Hebrew Christians, who were running a race far more important than the race that I ran back then. What was at stake was something far greater than jump wings. What was at stake was the eternal promises of God delivered once and for all in Christ Jesus. And God gave them this sermonic letter, the book of Hebrews, to encourage them so that when they hit their hill, and their hill was far worse than my hill, their hill was opposition because of the faith, persecution, their possessions being taken, even their lives threatened. And they wanted to quit. And God encourages them through this word. And you know what? God encourages us today through this word. Because I know there are some of you right now that are hitting a hill in your Christian walk. That hill may be in the form of physical disease. It could be in the form of sins that you're trying to overcome and you just can't. It could be in the form of conflict. Maybe even persecution at work in your neighborhood from family and friends. I don't know. But this sermonic letter, this book of Hebrews comes to us this morning and God himself is speaking to us this morning and he's encouraging us and he's telling us this. He's saying, consider Christ, my son's faithfulness, and then help one another. Help one another keep a firm grip on your faith. That is to say, don't give up. Don't quit when you hit the hill. You see, this book, passage today is an encouragement, but it's also a warning. And I need to tell you that. Because what we're going to see in this passage is a warning to remain firm in your confidence, really firm in your faith. As it says in the propositional statement, to keep a firm grip on your faith. And this this admonishment, this command to believers to hold fast to what they have is going to be one of the major emphases of the book of Hebrews. We saw it two weeks ago when Jose Prado preached from chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Back then it said, pay attention. Devote yourself. But later on in the book, we're going to see this admonition to hold on. Hold on. Keep on. Keep going. Don't lose the faith. So today's text is an encouragement, but it's a warning, friends. Today's text is a warning. It says, don't be like Israel in the wilderness that lost their faith, let go of their faith, but be like Jesus and Moses who were faithful to God. You see, the theological issue here centers on something that is very important. It centers on the issue of faith and two kinds of faith. Genuine faith versus false faith. Genuine faith perseveres. It it hangs in there to the end. It runs the whole four miles. It runs that hill and doesn't give up. False faith False faith does not persevere. By definition, it falters. It does not keep a firm grip on the confidence that God has given us. And this book and this passage is written to Christians to say, examine your heart. Which faith is in you? Which faith is in you? So, let's begin that examination by first looking at Jesus. Let me just remind you of our our propositional statement. You can keep that up there just for a moment. Here it is. Here's what I think this passage is saying. Let us consider Christ's faithfulness. Let us consider Christ's faithfulness. And then help one another keep a firm grip on our faith. Let us consider Christ's faithfulness and help one another keep a firm grip on our faith. Point number one. Let's consider Christ's faithfulness. Look at verses 1 and 2. Let us consider Christ's faithfulness. Verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed him. That one is God. He was faithful to God. And because Jesus was faithful to God, as it says in verse 1, 
We share in a heavenly calling. That heavenly calling is a direct result of Jesus' faithfulness. It is not a result of anything we've earned. It's something we've been given by Jesus because of his faithfulness to the one who appointed him. And what did that one who appointed him appoint him to? Well, he appointed him to be an apostle and a high priest of our confession. Do you see that there in verse 1? The word confession, you can also really describe that as our faith. What we believe. Jesus is the apostle of our faith. What does that mean? Apostle means a sent one. He's the one that has been sent with the mission and the message of our faith. Jesus is our faith. Jesus is the content of our faith. He's the apostle of our confession. As our our mission statement for this church says, Christ Jesus is the gospel. He is the message. He is the messenger. He's all in all. He's all in one. He's the apostle of our confession. He's also the high priest of our confession. As we preached last week, as the high priest of our confession, he represents us to God and he represents God to us. He represents us to God. He became a man to represent us to God and then he represents God to us. How? By hanging on a cross where we see the face of mercy. God is mercy in that place of love. He represents us to God in taking the wrath that we deserve because of our sins on his body, his self, so that now we can have the favor of God. He's the high priest of our confession. So consider him, friends. Consider this one who is greater than Moses. Do you see that there? In verse 2, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now remember, the Hebrews to whom this was written were were tempted to not run the hill and go back to something. And you know what they were going to go back to? Judaism. So the author here, God here, says, listen, don't go back to Judaism because Moses himself is worshiping Jesus. Because Jesus is greater than Moses. Look what it says here. Moses was faithful. We want to consider Moses' faithfulness. It says that there. It says that, it says that Jesus is greater than Moses. He has more glory as the builder of the house than the house. Moses is the house. Moses is the people of God. We're with Moses. Jesus is the builder of the house. He's the builder of the people of God. New Testament would say, we're the body, he's the head. He, he created us as his people. So he's greater than Moses. But look at verse 5. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Now, jump down to verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Moses is faithful in God's house as a fellow person, people of God, as a servant. Jesus is faithful over God's house as the son. So don't go back to Moses. You've already got Jesus. That's what he's saying there. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus' faithfulness. That's the point. That's our first main point. Now, as we consider Jesus' faithfulness, we bump into something that is a bit scary. We bump into a verse that is a little difficult to understand. So let's go hit it head on, shall we? Let's go to verse 6. We've already seen that Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses was faithful as a son in God's house. Verse 5, he was faithful to testify to the things that were spoken about. By the way, those things that Moses testified in verse 5, you know what they were? Jesus. Moses preached Jesus. He didn't know who Jesus was, but he knew one was coming that was greater than him. But now look at verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Good, I got that. That makes sense to me, but oh, 6B. And we are his house. Yay! If, if, God put that word there, if, troubling word, indeed, we hold fast our confidence, read faith, and our boasting in our hope. Oh, friends, here we come again. We bump into this emphasis in Hebrews. We're going to see it time and time again. Uh, Jose is going to preach on it in Hebrews chapter 6. He said, Al, I want to preach this one, because that one is where you really see it, okay? But you've got this conditional clause. What do you mean we're his house if? I thought we were his house because. Well, yes, we are his house because, and we are his house if, both and. Huh? Stay with me. You see, here we have this emphasis in Hebrews. Hold fast to what you've been given. 
Here we have this emphasis on genuine faith versus false faith. And to help us understand this, I've asked two friends to join us. I've asked Kent Hughes to come and speak to us for a moment. So can you please put Kent Hughes up on the screen? Kent Hughes is a wonderful expository preacher, and uh, he is going to speak to us right now. So thank you, Kent. Listen to what Kent says in his commentary. We will find this condition, the one we just read in verse 6, again and again in Hebrews, continuance in the Christian life. Holding on is the test of real faith. The doctrine of the final perseverance of the saints, which I hold strongly, has as its corollary the salutary teaching that the saints are the people who preserve to the end, by definition. The writer of Hebrews fears that some in the storm-tossed church will not persevere. And I've asked another friend to come talk to us. This one all the way from Australia. P.T. O'Brien. P.T. just wrote a wonderful uh, commentary on Hebrews, very technical, but it's really good. And this is what Mr. O'Brien says to us. This conditional sentence of verse 6, as well as its parallel in verse 14, and the admonitions throughout the discourse, that's the book of Hebrews, make it clear that the author of Hebrews recognizes a kind of transitory faith, a form of conversion which, like the seed sown on rocky places, Mark 4, has all the signs of life, which does not persevere. Such faith is spurious. Fancy word for false. Okay, just write in false there. Why didn't he just say false? I don't know. Such faith is spurious by contrast. Genuine faith is tied to perseverance. And and through the conditional sentences of verses 6 and 14, Hebrews virtually defines true believers as those who hold firmly to the end the confidence they had at first. Here's the truth, friends. You can take those quotes down. Here's the truth. Christ's faithfulness is what makes my faithfulness possible. If we have genuine faith in Christ, then that genuine faith will hold firmly to the confidence and hope that we have in Christ to the end. Those who are truly Christ's will persevere to the end. And you'll know they're truly Christ because they persevere to the end. But... Hebrews tells us, examine yourself. Don't just assume. Examine yourself to see that you hold firmly your confidence. What is that confidence in verse 6? It's the confidence that Jesus is my apostle of my confession. It's the confidence that Jesus is the high priest of my confession. It's the confidence that my sins have been forgiven. Listen, it's the confidence that says, though I'm a sinner and I'm walking through the valley of death, and he's defeated Satan and death, but now I've got to face God's wrath, and I've just sinned. Do I ever approach God? Freeze the frame. A Christian holds his confidence and approaches God. Exactly after, the moment after he sinned. If he doesn't, he's not. He's trying to self-atone for his sin and do a bunch of good things before he can come back to God. That's not a Christian. So I run to God... Practical application. How do you know you're holding your confidence in Christ? I run to God. I, I, I boldly speak to God in prayer. And I boldly speak to others about Christ. That's holding my confidence. Does that describe your lifestyle, dear friends? Second, in verse 6, not only does he hold his confidence, but he boasts In his hope. Do you see that? And our boasting in our hope. What is this boasting? What is this hope? This hope, friends, is what we preached last week. The hope is that Jesus Christ won what we forfeited in the garden. In the garden, we said no to God, no to paradise, no to ruling everything underneath our feet, under his feet. And we fell and death came. Jesus comes and says, I won what you forfeited. I paid the penalty that you deserved. Now I give you hope for a life to come in my kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. That's my hope. And you know what? I boast in that hope. I boast in it. My question to you for application is, what do you boast in? Your possessions and position here on this earth? Or do you boast in the hope that God has given you in the world to come? 
Providentially, the scripture that I'm memorizing this week is 1 John, write this down, 2, 15 to 17. 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Just listen to it. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possession is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away. Listen to wisdom. The world is passing away with its desires. And whoever, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's my hope. I may have nothing on this earth. Great. Wonderful. I've got everything in the world to come. Friends, you can't love the world and love the Father. Your faith is false. You will not persevere. I'm not saying that. Scripture's saying that. And there's enough of a concern in the writer of Hebrews that it's there for us today. What do you love? What do you boast in? Where's your hope? Oh, friends, in your darkest days... Dear ones, when you're running up that hill and you want to stop, your legs feel like they're filled with lead, you want to quit, There is your Charlie Wise is right there in your ear saying, come on, you can make it. Go. It's this word. In a moment, we're going to see it's one another, but it's this word. You see, when we want to quit, we're to consider Jesus faithfulness. And the place we consider it the most is the cross because the son was faithful. It says it in Philippians 2. He was obedient, which is a synonym for faithfulness. He was obedient to the point of death, even death where? On a cross. So consider Jesus and his faithfulness and see that face of mercy in that place of love. And this will enable you to hold fast your confidence and boast in your hope and be firm in your faith. Now, at this point in the text, beginning in verse 7, God turns our attention from the encouragement of Christ and Moses' faithfulness to the warning of Israel's unfaithfulness. So click in your seatbelts, because it's going to be a little bit of a rough ride here, but you need to hear it. So look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Remember I told you this passage is both an encouragement and a warning. Here's the warning. And the warning is here because we need it. And the warning is there because Christians need to hear this. And here's the warning. Don't be like Israel in their unfaithfulness. Now, what I love about this, it has such a robust doctrine of Scripture. Look what it says in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Now, do you know what the Holy Spirit's saying? It's Psalm 95. He's going to quote Psalm 95 all the way through from verse 7 here to verse 11 in Hebrews 3. It just happens to be Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11. But he's quoting them. Well, don't you see what this is? This is proof that the Bible is God's word. Because it says the Holy Spirit says. But it's a psalm written by a man, inspired by the Holy Spirit. You got that? This is God's word. And because it's God's word, we must listen to it. By the way, He's writing to Hebrew Christians. Did you know that this psalm was very well known to Jews? It's not to us, I realize that. But it's very well known to Jews. This psalm was read often before every service in the synagogue. It was a call to worship. So Miguel called us to worship today with some words. Often this psalm would call the Jews to worship. But it wasn't just a call to worship. It was a call to carefully listen to the voice of God. May it call you and me to carefully listen to his warning today. Listen. Listen. This is the Holy Spirit speaking to you. And then look at the immediacy of it. Look what it says in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today. Today is a word that's going to be used several times in the verses that we're about to read. Why? Because it speaks of immediacy. Today is always today. It's always today. So always listen. There's never a day when God's not speaking. It's always by definition. Not tomorrow. 
today. Listen to God right now is what it's saying. Pay attention. Pay attention. Now, here's what you're to pay attention to. Here's the warning, verse 8. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. What does a hardened heart mean? Here's what some of the things that a hardened heart means. A refusal to even hear God's word. Some of you, your hearts are so hard, it's like water. The word, the word comes like, excuse me, like a rock. And the word comes like water, it just bounces off. A hardened heart means a refusal to obey God's word. It's a stubborn, obstinate heart. It says, I will not believe God. Okay, that's a pretty big warning, isn't it? What's this day of rebellion? What, what is this, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing? What is that? Now, as Gentiles, we've got to do some work. Okay, so do some work with me, okay? Get your Bibles open and do some work. Exodus 17 is the first day of rebellion. Exodus 17. And in Exodus 17, if you go there and you just take a look at verses 1 to 7, you're going to see the first day of rebellion. Now pay attention here, because if God is using this to warn you, you've got to understand what happened that he's warning you not to do. Because the Bible is written, the Bible is written to give you an example of Israel in the wilderness so that you don't do the same things they did. So what did they do in the wilderness? You should be asking yourself. Well, let me tell you. In Exodus 17, Israel grumbled and complained against God because they did not believe that God would provide water for them in the desert. They had seen God deliver them from Pharaoh and Egypt. They had seen God destroy the most powerful army in the world. They had seen God give them bread from heaven. We're talking over a million people. Fed them every day. Nice plan, huh? They had seen God even give them meat. But when it came to this certain place, in fact, these waters were called Meribah, which in the Hebrew means tested, they tested God, and Massah, which in the Hebrew means to quarrel with God or to grumble against God. When they came to the waters of Meribah and Massah, they said, you know what? We're not going to believe. You brought us out here to kill us, God. Don't be like that. But I am like that, aren't you? This week, I, I was complaining to God in my heart. I, I, I was disbelieving God. And as, as, as unbelief is in your heart, it starts hardening your heart like a petrification of something. And my heart was getting harder and harder. And you know what was coming out of my hard heart? A grumbling. I was, I was testing God, and I was, I was angry at God. And my good friend, Jim Britt, calls me. He says, how you doing, Al? Fine. (laughs) And then came one question after another. And you know, he helped me. And he says, you know, Al, I find that when I get in the desert, he used those words, and I start getting thirsty, I start doubting God's goodness. And that's what Israel did. The second instance in the wilderness is in Numbers 14. Numbers 14. Now, Numbers 14, 21 to 35 is, is a little while later after the waters of Meribah and Massa. So kind of Psalm 95 brings these two accounts together of rebellion against God. And in Numbers 14, 21 to 35, what Israel does there is they refuse to believe in God's power to deliver them. In the first instance, they refused to believe in God's provision to give them water, his goodness. In the second instance, they refused to believe in God's power to deliver them. Here's the scene in Numbers 14, 21 to 35. They're poised to go into the promised land. Moses says, send 12 spies out. The 12 spies go out, they come back, they come back with grapes so big, they had to carry them like, uh, you know, on these big uh, sticks, huge grapes, and they said, got good news, we got bad news. Good news, the land is unbelievable. Look, these are the grapes. The bad news, the land is filled with giants that are going to kill us. (laughs) And they refused to believe that God, who destroyed the most powerful army in the world, think of the craziness of sin, God who destroyed the most powerful army in the world couldn't deal with some rogue giants in Canaan. And 10 of them said, we're not going in. And everybody followed the 10. We're not believing you, God. You can't deliver us this time. 
And it was right at that point, friends, going back to Hebrews, when he said, I swore in my wrath, verse 11 of Hebrews 3, they shall not enter my rest. Their unbelief led to a hard heart. Their hard heart led to negativism and grumbling, and it led to disobedience. I will not go in. Don't we do that? (laughs) Here God has defeated Satan. Last week we talked about it. Rendered the one who has the power of death over us powerless. God, who is our pioneer, our leader, the founder of our faith, renders him powerless in our lives. And the slavery we felt, just like Israel felt slavery in Egypt, is gone. And then God, God, our, our, our pioneer, Jesus, leads us past the wrath of God. And we no longer have to fear what we really everyone should fear more than anything, even more than the devil, is the wrath of God. And we've seen that, just like Israel saw the deliverance from Egypt and, and went through the, the Red Sea and saw the Red Sea destroy all the Egyptians. And yet when it came time to obey him, to take a risk, to go into a land that was bigger than they were, with people that were stronger than they were, and they were just a bunch of farmers, they didn't know how to do anything, but God was with them. They said, I won't go. Because I don't believe you can deliver me. And they accuse God. And they disobey God. And we do the same. And we do the same. Friends, here's the warning. If the consequences for Israel not listening to the word of Moses was that they didn't go into the physical promised land, Canaan on earth, how much greater is the consequence for us who refuse to listen to the word of Jesus who's far greater than Moses? Consequence is forfeiting eternal Heavenly life. Are you warned? He's writing this to a little flock that is storm-tossed. He's writing this to Alpino when he's running up his hill in Miami and gets tired and hot and the enemies are too big and I can't deal with the sin of my life. And oh Lord, it's tough. And oh Lord, why aren't people responding? And oh Lord, this city is difficult. And oh Lord, the economy. And oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord. Trust me. I'm the deliverer. But if I don't believe it, my heart gets hard. And then I start complaining. And then the result of complaining is I just flat out disobey. Thank God, church, that you believe. Thank God that you believe. And we're planting a church in January of next year. We're going to go take a land with a bunch of giants. And we've got, you know, shovels and pitchforks and, you know, plows. We're farmers. These guys got AK-47s. But God's with us. And he defeated the most powerful army in the world in Egypt. Going back to the metaphor here, he's going to deliver us into that land. Thank you, Jose, for faith. Following you, man, as you follow Christ. Amen. Point two. See, all these warnings lead us now to God speaking to us. Point two, we've got to help one another keep a firm grip on our faith. If the consequences of losing that grip are so dire, and they are, we've got to help one another keep a firm grip on our faith. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 encapsulates the warning here. Take care, brothers. Take care of what? Of what you've just read in Psalm 95. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you what? An evil, unbelieving heart. An evil, unbelieving heart. Basically, it says, don't be like Israel. Don't allow your heart to be evil and unbelieving and then get hard so that you will not trust God, so that you will grumble against God, and then you disobey. Don't let that happen. In verse 12 is the transition for us to the command in verse 13. Verse 13 is the second main point of this of this sermon. Verse 1 is the first main point, considered Christ's faithfulness. Verse 13 is the second main point. Look what it says. But exhort, that word exhort, it means the following. Warning, reproving, encouragement, and comfort one another. Exhort. It's what Charlie Wise did for me. I'd be running up the hill and Charlie's teaching me how to run. He was a runner. Charlie's encouraging me. And then Charlie's admonishing me. Read, he's giving me a good kick in the butt when I needed it. So I need all that. We need all that, friends. Remember the warning? We need it. That's what it says here. Exhort one another every day. Ah, there's that word day. Remember today? As long as it is called today. There's an immediacy here. Do it today, right now. 
Don't wait. Don't do it tomorrow. Do it today. It's always today. It's always the right time to exhort, encourage, and help one another. Always. Always. And what are we to do? That none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. Oh, so unbelief comes and hardens my heart. Now we have a second enemy. Sin comes and hardens my heart. Both of them create a hard heart. They can't obey God. Friends, this is the point that I believe God wants to emphasize to you with a loud megaphone. We must, we must help one another keep a firm grip on our faith. We must do it. We must do it. The warning is dire. It's real. We must. I need you. You need me. Listen, guys, isolation leads to hardness of heart. Isolation leads to deceitfulness of sin. There are people that aren't here this morning. I wish they were here. I pray they hear this. But they're floating. They're out there on the edges. They're isolated. They don't come to church. They don't come to home group. They rarely do anything. They're just sort of living out there. And I just would just want to scream to them, get back in. I need you. You need me. There is a battle going on. There's a hill we're running up. And we've got to encourage one another so that we will not give up. That's what this passage is saying. It's so easy to let sin harden our hearts when we're in isolation. It's so easy. I alluded to this just a moment ago. But how does Palm Vista Community Church seek to obey verse 13? This is a question you need to ask yourself. How do I seek to obey verse 13? But I'm going to speak on the macro level. You bring it to the micro level. How God commands us after a dire warning, he commands us to exhort, to help one another, as while it is still called today. That's immediately. This isn't an option. This isn't let's do it next week. It's now. How do we do that? There's a lot of ways to do that. Here's how we seek to do it. What I'm doing right now. What I'm doing right now. I'm doing verse 13. A Sunday morning, good Sunday morning sermon helps you keep a firm grip on your faith. It knocks the cobwebs out. It's Charlie Wise running up next to you saying, come on, this is true, this is true, this is, you can do it. Okay, this is what God is. And it's, and it's directing you to the right places to look and think. Keep your mind in the game. Miguel did it. What, what does Miguel do here every Sunday morning? He says, hey guys, let's consider Jesus. And here are four songs, or five songs, or three songs, or two songs, or an, ex- or an encouraging word. He's always drawing, he's taking your head and gently lifting it up and saying, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. You need that, man. This is not a luxury. This is not a luxury. It is necessary. Well, where else does it occur? It occurs in home groups. Oh, friends. It occurs in home groups where, where people who love you are speaking into your life and you're, you're wanting them to speak into your life and you're speaking into their lives. It occurs this Wednesday night at Grow. Come to Grow. Come to Grow. I know you're tired. I'm tired too. But this is worth it. This is life. This is what we do. Study the book of Ephesians. You need it. The book of Ephesians speaks against the lies and the deceit of this world and your sin. And God says, get together and encourage one another. It it, it happens in the hundreds. This is probably where it happens the most, guys. It happens in the hundreds and thousands of emails and text messages and Facebook postings that are godly. Uh, And and all the phone calls and the, the hundreds of conversations that go on daily amongst yourselves. And I know you're doing this, and thank you, church, for doing this. The, we, we, we help one another keep a firm grip on our faith as we bring the Word of God to each other personally, one-on-one, informally, organically. I, I need that Charlie Wise in my life on Tuesday afternoon, on Thursday morning, on Saturday morning. I need, I need to open my life up to people. Listen, listen, it's, it's a great story. Uh... Thursday, we did a, um, our quarterly couples meeting with the smidgens. And uh, it was a great time. In case you haven't noticed, Cindy has sunglasses on this morning, which she's going to kill me that I'm making this point. But this is part of my story, okay? Well, she just had surgery on her eyes, and, and, and it's great that she's here. And, and, and on Thursday, her eyes were even more tender, so she could barely lift her head up. 
But she, she goes, I want to meet with you guys. So they come over to the house. We darkened our living room. We had lunch together. And, and I said, well, I feel like I'm having lunch with Stevie Wonder here. And so... <laughs> Now, now comes the serious part, okay? Listen, Cindy, Cindy asked my wife and me one question. And, 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 it, and it opened up an area of hardness in my heart. I didn't even know how it affected my wife, but through her tears, she just said, Al, she literally said this, you, it's just you get so negative when you get like that. I thought, I'm preparing this sermon thinking, maybe I should apply this sermon to my life. But I'm no different than you guys. If I let unbelief get in my heart and it hardens my heart sufficiently, I'm going to get negative. I'm going to be Mr. Negativity and grumble and just complain and be on everybody's case all the time. And she just said, honey, I don't know if you realize that you're doing that. And I said, I didn't, honey. And I thank you, Cindy, for asking that one question. She wasn't being probing she wasn't being invasive she was she was being my friend we were friends having lunch together and she just asked a question that's helping one another keep a firm grip on your faith amen Amen. and i was able to repent that's what i'm talking about it happens there far more often than here but it also happens this morning and at home group and at grow it happens in singles singles you need to meet together The world's going to speak a pack of lies to you. You need to hear Jason teach on this book, Knowing God. You need to talk about it together. It happens in parent youth meetings. Oh, it's coming up this this Friday night. We need to hear the word of God preached by Jose. We don't need a bunch of games and a bunch of just, you know, messing around. We need the word of God to correct me, to bring me, to bring me truth. Listen, the world is nailing our teens with lies every second. We've got to come with truth. I've got, to, I've got to be built up to have faith so that I can care for my teens and say, son, remain firm in the faith. And maybe your teen's not even a believer. Fine, let's start there. That's where it happens. That's where it happens. So here's the question of application for you. And for all of you that are listening, who aren't here, I wish you were. I pray you listen. Here's the question for application. Are you heeding God's warning? Are you taking advantage of these contexts to help one another keep a firm grip on our faith? Are we exhorting, encouraging, coming alongside one another daily, saying, let's keep believing, brother. Let's keep obeying, brother. Let's keep thinking carefully about Jesus, brother. Let's apply this to our lives today, now, immediately, today. That, that is the question for application for you and for me. Now comes the basic reason for verse 13. Look at verse 14. For we share in Christ if, there's that if again, for we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Just like in verse 6, both verses begin with our relationship with Christ. This relationship is solely Christ doing. He elected us, we believe that. He called us, we believe that. He saved us by his sovereign grace, we believe that. And he will cause us to persevere by his strength, not ours. We believe that. But you still got to deal with verse 14. Written to Christians. What does verse 14 says? Well, both verses state that the genuineness of our faith will be proved by the fact that we remain faithful to the end. And so we must help one another in those difficult times when we're running uphill and we want to quit. We must remember that we share a heavenly calling with Christ. We share. We're part of God's house in Christ. His spirit is in us. Our confidence comes from Christ. But he calls us to hold fast to that original confidence, firm to the end. What's it? What's the original confidence? Well, the original confidence is believing all that he's done, that he's going to restore me back to what I lost in the garden. He's going to crown me with glory and honor in Christ. Man, don't forfeit. Don't forfeit this wonderful promise of God for some temporary pleasure. The deceitfulness of sin tells you that pleasure is better than eternal life with God. Don't forfeit that was for some little God of your making or your little world. What they offer you is false and temporary, and it won't satisfy. Keep a firm grip on your faith in God. He alone is the one who is faithful. See, don't you see? That's what happened to Israel. They lost their grip. They hit the hill, and they stopped. 
They began so strongly and they ended so horribly. That's the warning to us. Don't forget it. And to drive the warning home, he ends our passage with verses 15 to 19. And let's look at those as we conclude. Look at verse 15. As it is said, today, you know what that is? That's, that's the author of Hebrews firing up some more fireworks. Guys, I'm talking about this is important. This is immediate. Today, now, listen to me. Pay attention. Hello? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He repeats that. And then he offers three questions. Three questions, friends, that are going to tie this thing up for us. And they're rhetorical questions. Okay? Question number one in verse 16. So for, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Question number one reminds us, who were the ones that rebelled? The ones that actually saw God's salvation. Therefore, you Hebrews, it's possible for you to rebel because you've seen God's salvation. Don't forget God's faithfulness to deliver. Question number two, verse 17. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Wasn't it with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Who was he provoked with? The ones who forgot God's goodness. They sinned against God, saying, God, you're not going to give us water. And their bodies fell in the wilderness. They spent 40 years there and died in the wilderness. Don't be like that, guys. You who've experienced God's provision, don't doubt it now. And question number three, verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? but to those who were disobedient. Oh, friends, he swore that they would not enter his rest because of their disobedience. Here's what God is saying. Do not, do not allow one another, in other words, help one another to keep firm in your faith because if you lose your grip on your faith, your heart gets hardened. And if your heart gets hardened, then you're disobedient. That's verse 18. The ones who were disobedient are the ones that he swore wouldn't enter his his rest. So don't let that happen to each other. Oh, is it true that it is God that holds us? Yes. Oh, is is it true that we trust in Christ? Yes. Is it true that the, the, the true righteous ones will persevere? Yes. But it's also true that he says, you've got to help each other. They're both true. So, as your faith level rises, your heart softens, your, your grumbling turns into praise, and you start living a lifestyle of obeying God. That's what this text is teaching us. Let us consider Christ's faithfulness and help one another keep a firm grip on our faith. Now, as we move to prayer and ministry, I have two burdens on my heart, two people that I think God is is, is aiming toward here. The first burden would be for those of you who are tempted to doubt God's faithfulness. You're tempted to doubt God's ability, his faithfulness to deliver you from the bondage of sin and Satan. And stay with me. This is a time to press in, not to pull out. Stay with me. Lean forward now. Don't lean back. This is where the business gets done in your life. God's delivered you to this point through his word and his spirit. Now, be delivered. God wants to deliver you from this bondage of sin. Some of you want to quit the hill because there's a sin in your life. There's an attitude in your life. Maybe it's a sin in someone else's life that's just not budging. It's an enemy. It's a big enemy in the land. It's a giant in the land. And you say, you know what? They're going to kill me. I'm not going to kill him. I want to quit. God wants to minister to you. And the second burden would be for those who who are tempted to doubt God's goodness. I felt this for some who are battling with sickness, or who have seen death up close, or for some who are, have financial situations going on that just look impossible. You have no water, you're in the desert, you're dying. And you doubt God's goodness. You're tempted to unbelief in this area of provision for your family. And some of you maybe are even coveting what others have. You're bitter that God hasn't given you more. I believe God wants to minister to you today. And I believe that it's, it's supposed to happen here. We're going to line up a bunch of people who are no better than you. They just happen to be leaders in the church that will pray for you. And if you're a leader in the church and you say, Al, forget about praying for people. I need prayer. Fine. You get in the line too. And we're just, and we're just going, to, we're going to take our time. Listen to me carefully. This isn't an option. 
This this isn't something we just do as a ploy. This is verse 13. Exhort one another. You get bombarded with everything that the world has to throw at you, Satan has to throw at you, and your own flesh has to throw on you. you. You spend a precious few minutes a week here. Let's not rush. Some of you just may want to come up and say, pray with me. I need someone to just agree with me to be firm in my faith. That's what we're going to do here in just a moment. I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and while I'm doing that, the team will join me, and then we'll start singing a few songs. Leaders, come on up, and and let's receive ministry from God. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I thank you that by your grace, by your grace, we're seated in this auditorium. By your grace, we're your people. By your grace, you've called us, you've chosen us, you've sanctified us, you've saved us, you've cleansed us, you've cleaned us up. Some of us were a mess. All of us were a mess, just some of us are more aware of it than others. We were lost, we weren't looking for you, and you found us. So Lord, I pray right now for my dear friends in this auditorium. I pray, first of all, that you would engage their hearts pushing back every distraction that would be coming in right now, and that your spirit would have your way with your people, and they would pay attention, and they would receive the warning, and they would run to you, and they would consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of their confession. And I pray in Jesus' name that we would exhort one another. Oh God, the only way we know how to do this right now is just to pray with folks. Lord, we don't know what else to do, so we're doing what we see your words say. And when we do it, Lord, we're believing that the power is from you, that there are people in this room that are going to be set free from sin and bondage and fear and anger and hard hearts will be softened. Lord, I pray that unsaved hearts would be softened and saved right now. People that are about to do something that would be horrible, that no one knows. They've said, that's it. I'm done with the Christian thing. I'm really going to go for it now that today they'd be arrested spiritually and drawn back to you by your spirit. That false faith, the games that people are playing, would be changed to genuine faith right now. Right now. In Jesus' name.